Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good. Good to see you all this morning. I'm Scott. I'm an elder here at North Shore Church. I don't know why I always say North Shore Church. That's the church we're in. Um, and uh, today I'm going to be going over the fighter verses that we've been doing all along. It's a memorization um, of the scripture that uh, I think has really been, people have really been enjoying, and I know I have been. But I may have to cheat a little bit and look down once in a while. I said it in the mirror three times perfectly, and now I'm missing it. So um, that's just the way it goes. So we're going to first say the Bible passage, then we're going to say the scripture, <clears throat> and then we're going to say the Bible passage again. So let's start. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise it in the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. All right, let's say it again. This time, the words will be up on the screen. And, um, and we'll go ahead and do this again. All right, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. All right, next we're going to turn to Acts, Acts 5, verse 17, as we continue on in Acts. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, <clears throat> they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison, are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of them of being stoned by the people. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today praising your holy name. We thank you for bringing each and every one of us here today as we are your children. We praise together as your children, and we worship your holy name, our Father and our God. We praise you that you are at work in each one of our lives today. Thank you, Lord, for that. Meet us where we're at and help us to stop worrying, knowing that the king of the universe already knows and has tomorrow figured out. 
Help us to not always seek immediate relief for our troubles, but instead wait for the lasting treasure of eternal inheritance. Help us to be quiet in those times and listen to what you want us to learn. Help us to see your good purposes behind the scenes and help us to surrender your purpose or our, as we continue to look as you of our source of help. We pray for our service today that the Holy Spirit would dwell among each one of us and keep us free from distractions, Lord, as we hear what you have already prepared our hearts to hear. We pray for Pastor Duncan, that his words would be your words, that he would speak boldly and truthfully. Prepare not only our hearts as we hear your word, but also the heart of Pastor Duncan's as he speaks on your account. Just be with him now, O Lord. We pray for our church family today. We pray for Brenda Jorgensen, for her great nephew Asher. Um, Lord, that you would just give the family um, direction and discernment and grace and comfort. Be with the doctors to find out ways of dealing with his illness. And Lord, today we just pray for, for uh, Mel and Brenda, uh, for, for the loss of Brenda's father, and for their whole entire family. We pray for peace and comfort, Lord, as, um, as we just all mourn with them. Lord, we pray for John Hickson for continued recovery from his surgery and also for his sister Anna, who is on hospice. Please comfort her, Lord, in these of her last days and that um, her claim to salvation, her new claim to salvation would just encourage others around her. We pray today for Ruth and Jerry Stepke for just health needs and, and wisdom from the doctors. God, just be with them. We pray for Donna and Warren Thurston for Warren's health issues. Um, give Donna and, uh, wisdom and patience in being the caretaker for Warren. Um, God, that you would just help them to have way more good days than bad days. Be with them, Lord, as they continue on. Thank you for helping them to be servants of your word and for loving you so much and you loving them. We pray for Kim Hole's brother, Rick, who possibly had a stroke, that Rick would get better and that you would be with him and his, and his wife and that they would just find salvation in Jesus Christ, Father. We just pray for all the people we know that are in that place, Lord. We pray that you would call them. We also pray for Nick uh, Cherubini, uh, Maggie's husband, uh, for his really bad arthritis pain that he has. God, would you heal him? Would you just be with him today, Lord, and look over and help him with his back and his knees? Father, we pray, we, we lift up all these folks and all others around, Lord, that are struggling with pain and grief and um, just a less desirable season of their life, Lord, that you would just come and secure them in your arms. Know that they are precious. They are a precious gift of Jesus. Father, I just pray that you would help them feel that. We pray that all of our prayers and our petitions before you, O Lord, would be heard. We pray that as we continue our worship now through the hearing of your word, that each one of us would go into the world proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus. Give us whatever gifts that you have given each of us for your honor and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We continue this week, as you just heard read in chapter 5, book of Acts, as we trace Luke's account of the early church, and this is still that time of the church when it existed as a church only in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. It hadn't spread beyond that at this point. Last week, we saw Luke's account of the miraculous works done by the apostles that God used as signs to point to the preaching of the gospel, to draw attention to the gospel. 
we saw that the result of that was the most rapid growth that the church had experienced up to this point. We saw that the result of the rapid growth was opposition, which is where we're moving this week. This week we'll be looking at Luke's account of the Jewish religious leaders' futile attempts to strike back at the apostles for repeatedly violating the command that they had given them earlier to not preach in the name of Jesus. And of course, they disobeyed that. We will obey God, not man. This account testifies to the truth that many have experienced, certainly heard about, read about. If you know anything about church history, you know that almost no genuinely powerful work of God in a fallen world goes unanswered by those in the darkness. In this case, that's the Jewish religious leaders. First, these leaders, as we read, throw all of the apostles in jail. And next, they orchestrate an impressive gathering of all the Jewish religious elite in Jerusalem to serve as witnesses to the legal charges that they're going to be bringing against these apostles. And so Luke describes the unusual efforts these Jewish authorities exert in their attempt to display their power and their authority. He records in verse 21, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. Council, senate, what does that mean? Well, the scholars tell us about this gathering that all available leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem are present. This was a big gathering. Okay? This is an all-hands-on-deck moment for the Jewish religious elite. They are out in force, and their attention, intention behind the gathering, this impressive assembly, seems to be to intimidate the apostles into silence. Instead of that, which was their plan, we see God's intention in this situation in ways that transform this potentially humiliating moment for the apostles into something that actually looks quite different. These Jewish leaders end up exposing themselves as completely misguided and impotent people. The important question we have to raise whenever God dramatically intervenes in favor of his people and in opposition to our adversaries is, why? What is God's motive in doing this? There are several possible reasons that could be in play here and that are modeled throughout Scripture. But in this instance, we get the main reason why God intervenes here as we look closer at the way in which Luke describes these events. Sometimes the meaning of a text, especially in these narrative or story passages, is not simply in the words themselves, but how the author tells the story. And the answer, as we'll see, I trust as we trace through this, you'll see this, is not one you probably expect in terms of God's reason. We're going to spend some time on this because Luke's example here of biblical storytelling in these 10 verses or so is a fantastic one to serve as a teaching opportunity for us to see how biblical narrative writers communicate their meaning through the way they tell the story. And there are no better storytellers in history. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy got nothing on biblical narrative writers. 
These are phenomenally gifted, inspired writers. So first, let's look at just a couple of the possible motives for God that were not true, that we might think are true based on some sort of cliched understanding of the Scripture. First, we need to know it is not God's intention to bring glory to himself by publicly displaying his miraculous, liberating power. And the reason we know that is because he places almost no emphasis on that element at all. The commentators agree that Luke uses the very barest of details in describing God's miraculous prison break here. And because Luke describes God's supernatural activity here in such an understated way, we know he's not trying to highlight his miraculous power. We see just how understated he is here when we look at one of the other prison breaks in Acts, where he's not trying to communicate what he's communicating here. There are three prison breaks recorded in Acts. The one here, the one in chapter 12, and then one later on in chapter 16. In the account in chapter 12, if we were to read it, you'd see there's a whole lot more detail as Luke describes God's work to liberate his apostles. He describes in some detail how securely the prisoners were bound with chains. There's two sentries at the door. He reveals a supernatural light shining in the cell when the angel of the Lord appears. Luke describes the angel in that account striking Peter to get him to wake up and instructing him to wrap your cloak around you and follow me. That's detail. There's none of that here. There's none of that here in chapter 5. Here in verse 19, we're left only with, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. That's it in terms of the escape. And then it says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of life. Again, only the barest of details are given, and that's, there's a reason for that. It's because he doesn't want that to be the focus. Another way we know that Luke's intent is not to display the supernatural power of God is because there's no record of the apostles recounting this escape to the Jews when they go out and preach to them around the temple area. I mean, you could have drawn a pretty impressive crowd by announcing people, as some of you know, last night we were imprisoned in the public jail, but God has miraculously freed us so that we could preach the gospel to you. It's not there. The angel of the Lord says, just go and preach the gospel. Make it simple. Also, the silence here in this account is deafening on the part of the Jews. Because if you were to read ahead, you'd see the Jews who were clearly wondering about what happened here. They never ask about it. I mean, there's no record of the leaders addressing what is clearly the elephant in the room. They never ask, you know, excuse me, apostles, how did you get from the prison to the temple? What happened there? It's never brought up. They understandably don't want to draw attention to the fact that they can't even manage to keep these apostles behind locked prison doors. Second, it seems clear that God's motive for freeing these apostles wasn't because he wanted them to have a terribly fruitful preaching experience or to put an end to persecution, because neither of those objectives are realized by this prison break. The apostles do go out and they preach the word for a little while, but it's daybreak, okay? That means it's sunrise. Not a lot of traffic in and around the temple when the sun is just coming up. And Luke gives no report that anything special happens in response to their preaching. They weren't preaching, but just a little while. And this miracle 
clearly doesn't stop the persecution because only a few hours later, they're rearrested, brought in, and it says they're beaten. Okay? So this does nothing to stop the persecution. So if those are not the reasons for this miraculous prison break, the question is, why? Why did God deliver his apostles in this way? The main reason we can tell, as we'll see, from the details that Luke chooses to emphasize as an account, is God miraculously delivers his apostles mainly to compel these Jewish leaders to trust in Christ. This is an amazing story. Because that would not be the motivation that we would easily have occur to us. Because we tend to think of these Jewish religious leaders, who, by the way, put Jesus on the cross, as basically unredeemable. Our first impulse is to think that God had more or less given up on this crowd, because we certainly would have if it had been us. The easy but incorrupt assumption here is that these leaders have permanently disqualified themselves from God's grace. And one of the lessons of this story, as I trust you will see, is never give up on anybody. Never give up on anybody until their heart stops. Don't ever give up on them. Because if God can save people like this, he can save anybody. The most obvious problem with writing off these Jewish leaders as targets for God's grace is that we know from the rest of Acts and, frankly, the Gospels that several of these Jewish leaders do, in fact, become believers. We know from the Gospels that Nicodemus, who was in the Sanhedrin, he met Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And later, he, along with another member of the council, Joseph of Arimathea took a huge risk, courageous risk, by taking the body of Jesus down from the cross, preparing it for burial. But there's more evidence outside the Gospels. The famous Rabbi Gamaliel, which we'll see more next week, is also someone that, according to Christian tradition, later becomes a follower of Christ. We don't know that with certainty, but it is consistent with what he has to say in the next section. But most compellingly, however, is that in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke records, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here's evidence, biblical evidence, that there were many priests around Jerusalem, almost all of which would have doubtless been in this room, who later became followers of Christ. Another indication from this text that God uses this event to make a gracious overture to these Jewish religious leaders is because he clearly orchestrates these events to powerfully reveal to these Jewish religious leaders the utter futility of their opposition to the apostles and their preaching of the gospel. From the details that Luke includes in this story, it's clear that God wants to maximize, he works to maximize the sense of helplessness that these leaders feel as they seek to oppose the, the apostles in their mission to preach the gospel. The truth is, these leaders are horribly and repeatedly humbled and humiliated in this account. We know that perhaps the most effective way to reach proud people, and that's just everybody, but especially people who have religious pride or spiritual pride like these leaders had as they assembled in this group in all of their pomp and 
pomposity is to powerfully humble them. This can, by God's grace, in their humbled state, cause them to be open to considering that they are, in fact, wrong. Someone who thinks they're right, in order to get them to think they're wrong, the thing that happens in between, if they're strongly persuaded, is they have to be humbled. You have to be humbled to change your mind, to go 180 in the opposite direction. This is precisely what happened with Saul. Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. Damascus Road, God dramatically puts him flat on his face and blinds him in the presence of his glory. And he, guess what? He stood up and he believed. Okay? As it relates to these Jewish leaders, it would be hard to conceive of a way to orchestrate a set of circumstances to make these men feel more foolish and more powerless. Luke gives us a story that is a veritable case study in how to humble a group of haughty leaders who are impressed with their power and authority. In this story, God works to completely gut them of any sense of their own superiority. So with that lens, as we're reading this account, which I think is the right one, let's think about three ways in which these highest authorities in Judaism are completely humiliated and put in their place. First, speaking of the religious leaders, their legal authority is completely undermined. Luke tells us in verse 17 that the reason they had the apostles arrested was because they were filled with jealousy. They didn't experience some jealousy. They weren't jealous. It says they were filled with jealousy. They were eaten up with jealousy over the apostles' authentic spiritual authority and the favor that the apostles enjoyed among the people at this point. And jealousy, of course, is not a new response to God's work among these leaders, is it? It also played a significant role in their motivation a few months earlier when they wanted to put Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27 when Jesus was on trial. One reason that Matthew gives as to why Pilate was seeking to release Jesus was for he knew that it was out of envy that they, these religious leaders, had delivered him up. So these Jewish leaders were very possessive of their religious authority and the esteem of the people. And Jesus and the apostles pose a real threat to that. Their jealousy and their envy at Jesus and the apostles tells us that they were more concerned about their turf, their position, their authority, their esteem, than they were about what God was doing through the apostles. We know from the gospel accounts that these men enjoyed their religious authority, and John 12, 43 says, they loved the praise of men more than God. So when people are filled with jealousy, when those kind of people find their coveted authority threatened, they act to squash anybody who is opposing them. So when God uses his Holy Spirit-empowered apostles to challenge their authority, they strike back. And they strike back in what they consider to be a very powerful way. We see the first example of the, the strength of their feeling, which manifested itself in their pettiness, in verse 17 when Luke reveals they put them, the apostles, in the public prison. Okay, every word's important here. 
public is important. There were at least two kinds of prisons in Jerusalem, we know from the book of Acts. This one and the one we saw in chapter 4, which was a different one in which they placed Peter and John. The scholars tell us that in this public prison, the holding area for these men would have been in public view, like a zoo with animals in cages. That's not an accident. The leaders clearly wanted to put all of these imprisoned apostles on public display to shame them and to reinforce to them, just to remind them that they were the ones calling the shots here. This is a power play to humiliate the apostles. But one of the delicious ironies, and there are several in this story that Luke reveals here, is that instead of the apostles being humiliated and ashamed, it's the religious leaders who are humbled because they prove themselves to be unable to detain these people in custody for even one single night. Their complete absence of authentic authority over the apostles is dramatically thrown back in their face. Another way that God, in his mercy, humbles these Jewish leaders is that in spite of their positions of formal religious authority, it's them not the apostles who are placed on the defensive. You see, normally when you charge someone with a crime and you incarcerate them, you're the one on the offensive. You're prosecuting. You're in the position of power. The other people that you're charging, they're the ones on the defensive, not here. Think about it. This was a trial that had been orchestrated and initiated for the purpose of driving home to these upstart apostles how impossible it was for them to prevail over the Jewish elite. And so they assemble the most powerful people in Judaism to attend this proceeding, and they put the apostles in their place. Yet as God unfolds this story, it becomes breathtakingly clear to them that they are clearly not the ones in control. In verse 26, Luke records that it was the religious leaders, not the apostles, who are on the defensive. When it's discovered that the apostles are no longer in prison, but are in fact out preaching in the temple, Luke records, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, this is precisely the opposite of what was supposed to happen. Okay? It was the apostles who were supposed to be on their back foot, not the Jewish leaders. The Jews had orchestrated this series of events for the purpose of scaring the apostles into submitting to their directives. They intended to frog march these apostles in their chains before all of these Jewish elites as bound and silent they would wide-eyed look at this imposing assembly of spiritual authority that they were challenging. That's what's in the religious leader's mind. That's how they envisioned this was going to be. But who is it? that ends up being afraid for their lives. It's the religious leaders. Luke says they were fearful of being stoned by the public, who were the very people whose opinions they valued so deeply. A third way in his grace God is humbling these proud people, seeking to soften their hearts, is to show them that compared to the apostles' genuine, authentic spiritual authority, they were in fact a bunch of religious bunglers. The way in which Luke tells his story brings out the comedic element that reveals these Jewish leaders to be people who are very weak. It's really important to notice 
that Luke informs the readers, like us, details of the events that the Jewish leaders were ignorant of. Okay? While the leaders are waiting for the apostles to be brought before trial, we already know as the reader that God has not only freed them from prison, but he'd sent them to the temple to engage in the one thing these religious leaders had forbidden them to do, which is preach in the name of Jesus. Luke uses that literary device to highlight how completely clueless these people were. Because we're reading and saying, I know what's going to happen, and you don't. Another great irony is that the leaders enter with all of their pomp and impressive numbers, preparing to make an example of these naive followers of Jesus. But when they call for the prisoners to be brought in, something that the reader knows is going to be an exercise in futility, the officers can't find them. Then they publicly pronounce before this huge gathering the humiliating truth that the apostles, unknown to them, have flown the coop. Luke allows us to picture in our minds the uproar that must have ensued when the apostles weren't found in the jail. He reveals their anguish in verse 24. He says, Now the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Translation, the Jewish religious leaders were completely unmanned. And the coup de grace, of course, is when an unnamed public official cries out to the entire assembly, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. (laughs) He could not have possibly stated this in a way to more clearly establish how these leaders had utterly lost control of the situation. Again, don't miss the striking irony here. The apostles, who were supposed to be fearful because they, before this impressive assembly of religious leaders, were finally being called to account for preaching in the name of Jesus, were in fact just outside preaching in the name of Jesus, while these bumblers are waiting inside for them to appear before them. This great assembly of Jewish religious officials that was supposed to humble the apostles instead serves to place on very public display how God had thoroughly and completely outmaneuvered them. Again, it would be near impossible to tell the story to do a better job on so many levels of making these Jewish religious leaders look like complete fools in their attempt to silence the apostles. Contrary to what the religious leaders had deluded themselves into believing, God had clearly placed his seal of approval on Jesus, his mission, and these apostles who were carrying it out. And in order to drive that truth home to these jealous and prideful Jewish religious leaders, out of sheer grace, he does what he knew would most powerfully persuade them that they were on the wrong side of history. He takes these apostles who have no formal religious authority or education, and he uses them to show how weak and powerless they were. Another way to put it, as we will see next week from the lips of Gamaliel, is that God was revealing to these leaders that in their opposition to the apostles, they were opposing God. He shows them that with all of their religious power and all of their religious authority and with them holding all the cards necessary to prevail here, they can't even manage to keep them in prison and keep them from preaching. 
and every carefully orchestrated element these leaders include to strengthen their position, the large gathering of the leaders, the public prison, God turns it upside down to work for his benefit and to get the apostles preaching. And perhaps the cherry on top of all of this comedy of errors was initiated by the work of the Lord in that none of these Sadducees even believed in angels or supernatural beings, and it was an angel who freed the apostles. This is a brilliant way of telling the story. This tells us something important about how God works in the lives of sinners and his own children. That is, God's grace to prideful people, which is all of us, doesn't often feel much like grace. There are certain experiences that everybody has had here. We hate them. They're excruciatingly painful. And near the top of everyone's list of those kind of experiences is public humiliation. My seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Sargent, who I struggled with, bitterness for many years. <laughs> I had a crush on the girl in front of me. Her name was, well, I won't give her name. But I had written her name in pen across the back of my binder on the inside cover in ballpoint pen in big letters. And she came back and she was perusing and she happened to see that I had done that. And so she picked up my binder and showed everybody the name of this girl. She was a great teacher. <laughs> Thought very highly of her for that, no. I, okay. All of us have had something like that happen to us, sometimes multiple things, and they are cringeworthy. And to this day, we just repel. We don't want to think about them. They're so painful. Humiliation doesn't feel like grace, but to prideful people who seek to make much of themselves, which is all of us at times, it can be a very powerful tool in the hand of God to humble us and to show us that God alone, not anything we do or say, is worthy of praise. And Peter, of course, painfully experiences this on the night that Jesus was arrested, didn't he? In Luke 22, 33, when Jesus told Peter that he would lose heart and he would turn away from him, Peter proudly proclaims, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. God used Satan and his tempting power to show Peter the truth about himself, namely that he was a weak man and he needed God's grace just like everybody else. Peter's story gives us hope that when God does humble us and show us our need for God's grace, that's not lethal. We can get back up again by his grace and be a tool that God uses for his glory. My assumption is that many of our salvation testimonies include details that at the time were deeply humbling to you as God exposed to you your foolishness, your weakness, the wickedness of your heart to show you how badly you needed Jesus. As painful as that kind of humbling is, it's God's kindness to us. James 4.6 tells us God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If a person is to receive God's grace, whether saving grace in conversion or sanctifying grace as a believer, we need to receive some humility. And broadly speaking, there are only two ways in Scripture for a person to receive humility. First, we can either 
humble ourselves by confessing our sin and in deep dependence of God, throwing ourselves on his mercy, crying out for him to work in our hearts to do what only he can do. Or secondly, as we see here, God can humble us. God loves his children enough to humble us by placing us in positions where we're reminded just how needy we are. And of course, there's limitless ways that this can happen, isn't there? It may be a physical affliction. It can be a career failure or a failure to perform in some other way that's very important to us, but which deeply disappoints us. God uses these humbling experiences to reveal our need of God's grace. And when we're humbled to see that, he promises to give grace to those who are humble. Our memory verse this week is just another way of expressing this using words like discipline and reproof. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's the same thing. When God humbles a believer to show him his need for God's grace, as much as we're tempted to despise that, God is treating us as a good father who lovingly disciplines his children. So if you're in a season where your failures are being exposed, or you're experiencing or will be experiencing some humiliation, no, God is using that as a means of grace to draw you to himself. Because the first thing that has to be done in any work of grace is for us to have an accurate appreciation of our need for him. We regularly need reminding that we are not strong, and he loves us way too much to allow us to continue to believe otherwise. And that's what he was doing with these Jewish religious leaders in this story. A second reason God miraculously delivers these apostles, and we're going to spend far less time on this one, obviously, is God miraculously delivers his apostles to powerfully affirm the gospel they were preaching. This is not a contradiction to what we said earlier. As we said earlier, Luke doesn't provide much detail about this prison break. That means that the very few words that he does use, we better pay attention to them because they're very important. He gives a simple commission to these apostles. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice two things about this very brief statement. First, the fact that an angel of the Lord commissions the apostles to preach the gospel. Why did he do that? I mean, they'd already begun the Great Commission, Matthew 28. The Greek translation of the phrase angel of the Lord here in Acts is the same phrase we see in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, for the phrase the angel of Yahweh. Now, what that means here is that this is talking about God interacting with humans in angelic form. Okay? The scholars tell us, That though this angel of the Lord was not God in the same sense it was in the Old Testament, this phrase is used by Luke to communicate the presence of God, the agency of God. This is a very unique angel that has some sort of special divine connection. And the point is simply to communicate God is reaffirming the divine commission that Jesus gave to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, but he's specifically applying it to this particular occasion, to those Jews in the temple court. Why would he do that? He does it later in the book of Acts 2. 
And we'll see that Luke wants, to see, wants us to see that the gospel is so precious to God that he sends an angel of the Lord which conveys his direct presence and authority to spring his apostles to preach it, even if it's only for a few hours and to a few people. The gospel is so precious to God and lost people are so precious to God that he's willing to send a special, a special unique angel from heaven to miraculously deliver his apostles, even if this particular preaching mission was only for a few hours. And that's not speculation because we see him do the same thing later in Acts. We see the same urgency from God in Acts chapter 8 when he does much the same thing. Philip has been evangelizing the Jews when we meet him here in Acts 8, 26. Luke writes, Now the angel of the Lord, same thing, said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, to Gaza. This is a desert place. Again, we see an angel of the Lord commissioning an evangelist to preach the gospel in one venue. And in this case, the venue was one Ethiopian eunuch. And the angel of the Lord comes from heaven to say to Philip, go preach to that guy. One person. Another reason we know the gospel is precious to God is because of a second detail we need to notice about the angel's commission here, and that is the profound way in which the angel phrases the gospel message. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's such a powerful phrase. The angel who sees people from God's sinless perspective, in this sense, sees them only in two ways. First, those people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. Lost people. Those are spiritual zombies. They're walking around like they're alive, but they're spiritually dead. Second, those people who are not only physically alive, but they're also spiritually alive. And what God uses to make spiritually dead people live are the words of this life found in the gospel. We must never forget the power of the words of the gospel to miraculously bring life where only death has existed. Peter confessed to Jesus in John 6:68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It is mind-blowing to me to think that God has invested in words. Words are articulated sound waves. Okay? And so God has invested in words the very power of eternal life. Do we believe that? That just blows up my mind. The question for us is, do we prize the saving, life-giving power of the words of life in the gospel. And if we prize them, and we believe this, we'll be talking to people about it. We should, because telling people someone the gospel is the only way a person can know life out of death. May God give us the grace to regularly humble ourselves before him and speak this gospel to others, trusting him to use the words of life to bring people to himself for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, there's so much here. First of all, we just want to thank you that you don't write off anybody. You don't want us to write off anybody. God, you have your eternal purposes. We understand that but you don't want us to write off anybody. 
because I certainly would have written off these Jewish leaders, and yet it's clear from the way that this story is told that that's your appeal. You want them to see that they cannot stop this message. And as a Gamaliel will say later on, we don't want to oppose God. So God, we just thank you for that. Remind us of that the next time we think, oh, they would, they would never be a Christian. Oh God, keep us from that kind of foolishness. Saul of Tarsus can be converted, anybody can. And God, thank you for the fact that you do humble us sometimes. We can be very prideful people, very self-sufficient. And God, the experience is never one we enjoy, but you do it because as a father, you're disciplining us. You're loving us. And so God, help us to remember that the next time this happens. And Father, we thank you for this gospel that we have containing words that bring life out of death. Father, would you please enable us to internalize that? Not just to understand it mentally, but to believe it in our hearts. Because Lord, if we believe it in our hearts, it's going to make a difference in how ready we are to share it with others. So God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close and worship through.